Well, this morning, church, as we come uh, in our sermon series on the minor prophets uh, to the book of Habakkuk, we come to a book that is unique in all of the prophetic writings of the scriptures in that this book has no direct message from God to his people. Normally, in the prophetic writings, there is a message that is spoken by God uh, through His prophet to His people. Uh, Usually in the form of of, uh, warning for the transgressions uh, that God's people are committing, or in the form of encouragement and hope in in a message of judgment that's coming upon uh, the enemies of God's people. But in the book of Habakkuk, we have neither of these. Instead, in this prophetic writing, what we have is a much more personal form of communication. Rather than a message to a nation that can be applied to all, in Habakkuk, the Lord speaks an answer to a question that is heavy on the prophet's heart. And in a way that only the Lord can do, God's answer to Habakkuk both dumbfounds and deeply encourages his prophet by reminding him of both the mystery and the majesty of God's ways. And while this correspondence captures a a particular conversation between two particular beings regarding a particular set of circumstances that is unique to a particular time and space in history, it also speaks an important word to us today. Because the question that Habakkuk asks is a question that at one time or another sits central and heavy on every human heart and mind. And so while the answer that God gives to Habakkuk has profound implications for his particular circumstances, it also has profound circumstances for each and every one of our lives as well. And so if you have your Bibles with you, I want, you to, invite, I want to invite you to open them up uh, to the book of Habakkuk. And let's consider together the question of our hearts, the reply of our God, and the response of our lives. As we consider the major message of this minor prophet. First, uh, we come to the question of our hearts. And what we see in the first four verses of Habakkuk is that the prophet asks a question that we all ask at one point or another. He asks the question, why? This was a time in the nation of Israel when the people of God were in serious spiritual decline. It was not long before the people of Judah would be carried off into exile for their injustice and for their idolatry. It was a time when the evil nations around them were were growing in their power and in their influence and were increasingly becoming a threat to the people of God and to their ways. And as a result of all of this, the poor in the land were suffering. The evil around them was flourishing and everything seemed to be going wrong. And in response to all of the trouble that Habakkuk saw around him, He asks the question of God. In verses 2 through 4, he asks, How long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? 
or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. He's basically asking the question, why? Why do you not answer? Why will you not save? Why do you make me look at all of this evil stuff that is happening in the world? And why do you not do anything about it? Why do you let justice be perverted? Why, God? This is at some point the cry of every human heart. We see it cried over and over and over again in the Scriptures. The prophet Jeremiah, who faced a similar situation, asked, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Job, in the midst of his own personal suffering, asked the question why over and over again. Why did I not die at birth? Why is life given to one who is in misery? Why do you contend against me? Why do I labor in vain? We consider the Psalms. On on more than 20 different occasions in the book of Psalms, the psalmist is crying out at the trials that they are facing and at the persecutions that they are witnessing, asking why. Why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Why? 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 This is the cry of every human heart that has experienced pain or suffering or loss or heartache or injustice. And it rings down throughout history from Job all the way to Jesus who cried out while he was hanging on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From Job to Jesus to Jim to Josh to James to Jack and to Jeffrey and to every one of us here who does, whose name doesn't start with J but who has lived that same human experience and emotion we all ask this question why? the past two years have given us plenty of fresh reasons to do so haven't they? why in the 21st century after 400 years of suffering Are equality and civil rights still so hard to come by for so many non-white people in our country? Why is this virus still wreaking such havoc and destruction on the health and the ways of our lives? Why did another earthquake hit the nation of Haiti? Why did another hurricane come through the Gulf Coast? Why did 20 years of war and foreign occupation in Afghanistan appear to amount to nothing? And this says nothing of the personal whys that you may have in your own life. Why did we lose that child? Why did my spouse leave? Why have I not found a spouse? Why do I have this illness or this injury? That plagues me so painfully every day. Why? 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 
What is the why that's heaviest on your heart right now? What why do you want to ask of God? You know, sometimes I've heard the advice, and I'll acknowledge, in the past I may have even given the advice before that we shouldn't ask the question, why? Because there is no answer and because it's an accusation against God. But the prophet Habakkuk and the overwhelming testimony of the Scriptures have completely changed my mind about that. Because ultimately the question why isn't an accusation against God as much as it is a turning to God for help. Why is not a question that expresses doubt towards God, but it is actually a question that acknowledges your faith in Him. Because ultimately the question why conveys our belief in the goodness of God and in His ability to to help, to make things right. Otherwise, we wouldn't turn to Him at all. So why is a question of trust and faith in the midst of our confusion? We know that things should not be this way, and so we ask God why they are. And so if even Jesus asks God why in a moment of pain and suffering, we certainly can as well. I want you to know, church, this morning, that God can handle your why. But He may challenge you with His response. And that's what we see next in this conversation between God and His prophet. Look with me at verse 5. In response to Habakkuk's question of why, the Lord answers in a way that reminds us both of His mystery and of His majesty. He says, look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. In response to Habakkuk's question of why God is allowing suffering, the Lord tells him that he is at work, but that he is at work in a way that even if he told Habakkuk about it, Habakkuk wouldn't believe couldn't understand, would never be able to comprehend how the Lord was at work. And then he tells, and then God tells him what that way is. And in verse 6 and following we read, For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. The Lord says that the mysterious way in which he is at work in response to the injustice and the idolatry of his people and to the suffering that it was causing is that he is raising up the Chaldeans. Now, the Chaldeans were also known as the Babylonians. This was the nation that would eventually destroy the city of Jerusalem and take the people of Judah into exile for 70 years. And God here is telling the prophet that he is going to use this foreign and wicked nation as his instrument, as his tool of discipline and correction towards his own people. The Israelites had broken their covenant promises with God. And as God had warned them all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 28, now they were going to experience the punishment for their disobedience. And they were going to be given over to another people. God was literally using 
the mortal enemy of his people, as his instrument for correction in their lives. And it was going to be devastating for his people. It would mean destruction and suffering and death. That was how God was working. That was God's answer to Habakkuk's why. And the news of this Habakkuk was dumbfounded. God was right. He could not comprehend it. Couldn't believe it. Couldn't accept it. And in verses 12 through 17, he tries to process this news, reconciling it with what he knows to be true about God. He reminds God that, that, God, that he is everlasting. He reminds God of his holy nature, of his great promises to his people. That he reminds God that he is too pure to, to look on evil and to, and to see what is wrong. And then Habakkuk appeals to God again, this time in light of all that he knows to be true about the Lord. Habakkuk says, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Will the Babylonians keep on mercilessly killing forever? Habakkuk again asks the question why, but, but this time he frames it in light of the goodness of God. Why do you? A good and holy God allow this kind of suffering and evil. Now eventually God does acknowledge that he is indeed going to judge and punish the Babylonians for their evil and wicked ways. The second half of chapter 2 is a woe to the Chaldeans. And God makes clear that after he uses them for his purpose, that they will be dealt with for their own transgressions. But... First, they will be used against God's own people. And there are two aspects of this response from the Lord to Habakkuk that I want to touch on this morning. The first has absolutely nothing to do with us and with our circumstances. And the second has absolutely everything to do with us and with our circumstances. Let me explain. First, God's response to Habakkuk has absolutely nothing to do with us. And we need to be very clear about this. This was a particular response given to a particular question regarding a particular people at a particular time in history. And in that sense, what God says to Habakkuk is not transferable or applicable in any way to us and to our lives. Without God telling us that he is raising up an evil people as his discipline against us, or sending a plague of locusts as a means of judgment, as we, as we heard about in the prophet Joel, against us, we cannot assume that that is the case. We cannot presume or assume the mysterious ways of God. So, for example, we cannot say that, that the Holocaust was God raising up Nazi Germany as his instrument of judgment on unfaithful Israel, even though that is very similar to what is happening here in the book of Habakkuk. But we have no grounds to say that that is true of Nazi Germany. Or when Hurricane Katrina hit New Orleans 16 years ago, there were were a number of prominent voices declaring that it was the judgment of God on an unholy people. We have no grounds to say that. Could that have been true? Maybe. 
But it could have been equally true that Nazi Germany was, was a pure work of the devil, seeking to destroy that which is precious to God. Or that Hurricane Katrina was a random gathering of, of wind and weather patterns that swirled into a storm in the Gulf Coast. We have no idea. We have no grounds to say one way or the other from the perspective of God. Because He hasn't told us. And great harm has been done by false prophets espousing claims of God's judgment through the events of history. But unless we are explicitly told by God in His Word what He is doing, then we have no rights to make such assertions. And in that way, this message from Habakkuk has absolutely no application or bearing on our lives. The way that God works here with Habakkuk is not transferable to us. But in another very real sense, the message that God gives to Habakkuk has everything to do with the circumstances of our lives and is completely transferable and applicable to us. Because while in the particulars we have no ground to apply this message to our lives, in the generalities and in the underlying principles of this message, we can absolutely apply what God says to Habakkuk to ourselves. And that underlying principle is this, that God works in mysterious ways. The truth of God's message that is given to Habakkuk that applies to us is that God works in mysterious ways. And that even if we were told, we would never be able to comprehend. This truth is affirmed over and over and over again in the scriptures. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 writes, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts, my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Isaiah says we cannot grasp and understand the ways of God. Or consider the Apostle Paul, who after explaining all of the, the mystery and the majesty of the gospel in Romans chapters 1 through 11, he summarizes it all with the doxology that proclaims, Oh, the depths and the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments. How inscrutable His ways. Or Job, who after asking the question why for the suffering that he had encountered in his life, eventually got the audience with the Lord that he so desperately wanted. And in response to Job's complaints about why things had happened the way that they had happened, God simply said, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who laid its cornerstone?" God's answer in each and every occasion echoes his response to Habakkuk. If I told you, you would not believe me. You can't comprehend what I am doing. You see, what we believe is that God in his word has revealed to us everything that is necessary for our life and for our salvation. In the scriptures, he has told us everything that we need, need to know in order to live life well 
than to be saved. But he has not told us everything that we want to know about life and salvation. If he did, we wouldn't be able to comprehend it. For now we see as in a mirror dimly. Now we can only know in part. There is a time that is coming when we will see God and his ways clearly, face to face. Then we will know things fully. But until that time, his ways are mysterious. In fact, the only thing that we can know for sure about God and his ways, all that we are told for certain, the only promise that we have regarding the circumstances of our lives is that God is at work in the world. And that he will use everything that happens to us for the ultimate good of those who love him. That is the promise that we have. That not one ounce of our pain or suffering will be wasted or lost. It will all be redeemed for our ultimate good. That is what we can know for sure. As a result, pastors like Tim Keller have summarized this great truth by saying... That if we knew all that God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. Or or John Piper, who has said that God is so sovereign over the disasters and the disappointments of our lives that he is able to make every one of them serve our everlasting joy. What these men are saying is that whatever it is that you are suffering now. God will ultimately use it for your eternal good. We can't understand or comprehend God's answer to the question of why. But we can trust that he is at work. And in the end, it will be for our good and for our joy. That is what we know to be true. So how do we respond? Well, the rest of the book of Habakkuk, God gives us an instruction to obey, and the prophet gives us an example to follow. Let's look at them really briefly together. In the beginning of chapter 2, the Lord says to Habakkuk, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits an appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will not delay. It will surely come. And then he says that the righteous will live by faith. God is saying that there is a vision. There is a plan. There is a purpose. And if the fulfillment of that vision seems slow in coming, Wait for it. Because it will come to pass. And then he tells them that the the righteous, those who are his people, the righteous will live by faith. God's instruction to his servants in the midst of the suffering of this world and in the midst of the confusing and mysterious ways that God seems to be at work is that we, as his children, are to be patient. We are to wait for what God has promised to come to pass. We are to live our lives by faith, being sure of what we hope for, being certain of what we cannot yet see. 
He tells Habakkuk to live by faith and not by sight. Live your life by what you know to be true according to God and to His Word, not by what appears to be true according to your circumstances and the wisdom of this world. And this is what Habakkuk does. In the beginning of chapter 2, he says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself at the tower and look out to what he will say to me. And as Habakkuk is sitting on his watchtower waiting for the vision of God to come to pass, he concludes his conversation with God with a prayer in chapter 3, which ends with Habakkuk saying, Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Habakkuk is saying that despite how difficult and confusing the current situation may be, he will wait patiently for the fullness of God's plan and purpose to come to pass. He is not going to try to short-circuit the work that God is doing among His people through this difficult time. He is going to live by faith and patiently wait for God to work. And then Habakkuk ends with a beautiful doxology of surrender. And one of the most profound statements of faith in all of the scriptures when he says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, The flocks be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Habakkuk says that even if everything falls apart, even if everything goes wrong, Even if there are no signs of God's goodness or God's blessing anywhere around him. Even still, through heartache and through disappointment, through loss, through hardship, through trial, in want, he will still praise the Lord. This is Paul from our New Testament reading this morning. Content in God, whether there is much or whether there is little. Whether experiencing blessing or experiencing hardship. Church, whatever is going on in our lives, we can trust in the goodness of God. And in faith, we can still sing praise to His name. And isn't this ultimately the mystery of the gospel? And isn't this ultimately what has happened to Jesus? I mean, who would have thought That by the gruesome and violent death of God on the cross, that the world would be saved. Who could understand that by dying, Jesus would defeat death? The cross is foolishness to the world. It doesn't make any sense. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of men. God works in mysterious ways and always for our ultimate good. And so Christ, even when the road was marked with suffering, was willing to submit himself to God's purpose and to God's plan through the suffering that he would endure. Not my will, but yours be done. He faithfully endured the cross. 
And in the end, it led to life and to the salvation of the world and brought many sons and daughters to glory. This is the hope that we have in our suffering and in the good news of the gospel. If God was faithful to his son, he will be faithful to you, his sons and daughters. So church, I don't know all of the different sufferings that you are experiencing in your life. I don't know every why that sits heavy on your heart. But I do know this, that we live in the period of time between when God's biblical promises were made and when their ultimate fulfillment will come to pass. I know that God is at work in your lives, in the midst of your suffering, in a way that you could never comprehend, even if you were told. I know that we are moving towards a day when God himself will wipe away every tear from your eyes. I know that we are moving towards a day when there will be no more death, no more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. I know that we are moving towards a day when the former things that you struggle with now will pass away and when Jesus will make everything new. Until that day comes, His invitation to you in the midst of whatever it is that you might be going through is to live by faith, to trust Him, even when you can't make sense of the circumstances of your life. Even when God seems slow to fulfill His great promises to you. Even when your why seems interminable. Get up on your watchtower and wait on Him. And watch for Him. Because He surely will come. He will not delay. And His ways are worth waiting for. Because when he does appear, all of our interminable whys will once and for all be transformed into eternal wows. So church, in the midst of the suffering of this world, let us live by faith in the Son of God, who loves us and who has given himself for us, for his glory and for our good. Amen.